transcendence within reality. The archetypical romantic figure is the hero. The hero lives, like the rest of us, within the constraints of the everyday world, but, unlike the rest of us, manages somehow to transcend the constraints that hem us in. The mythic gods who transcended the constraints of nature at will were swept away by the rational drive to represent the world accurately. Such a romantic image, rationality sweeps away the old gods. It could be a theme, and probably was, for one of those romantic allegorical paintings of the 19th century. But while the gods might have disappeared from early rational narratives, they left a template that gives form to early rational attempts to make sense of events. In the place of gods and their will, we find heroic figures and their will. The trick of rationally representing the world, as one of the great proponents of the method put it, is to keep, quote, the eye steadily fixed upon the facts of nature, and so receive their images simply as they are, end quote. Well, it hasn't proven quite as simple as Bacon suggests. We seem to find it very difficult not to contribute something to the facts of nature as we receive them. If we look at how Herodotus represented causality in his histories, for example, we see events as the result of the emotions and consequent actions of important individuals. In sophisticated modern historical texts, we see causality in social and economic conditions, in complexes of prior social and psychological influences. Herodotus's text, however, is full of heroic characters who are extraordinarily clever or daring or cunning. Their heroic actions are represented as the causes of events. In modern historical texts, establishing causal conditions will involve an analysis. In Herodotus's text, it involves a story, or many stories. What caused the great war between the Persian Empire and the Greek states? Herodotus sweeps aside earlier stories and locates the initiating cause in Croesus's greed and his desire for vengeance against Cyrus. Essential to the story is the background explaining how Croesus came to lead so great an empire. Lydia, for example, passed into Croesus's family because its previous ruler, Candalus, thought his wife the most excitingly beautiful of women, and he half persuaded, half compelled one of his favorite bodyguards, Gyges, to watch at their bedroom door to see her undress so that he might confirm Candalus's estimate. The naked and unnamed queen saw Gyges as he slipped away. The next morning, she gave Gyges a simple choice, be killed immediately or kill Candalus and rule in his place. Poor Gyges chose the latter, and his great-grandson Croesus thus later inherited the throne. Herodotus tells us that, as king, Gyges attacked the Greek Ionian town of Miletus. Quote, that, however, being his only act of importance during a reign of 38 years, I will pass on without further comment. End quote. Clearly, the criteria that rational Herodotus uses in selecting what to include in his narrative are somewhat different from those that shape typical modern historical texts. The form of causality Herodotus uses is readily comprehensible to us and remains popular in modern films, novels, soap operas, and journalism. His text is full of individuals whose emotions cause the events that make up his narrative. Those emotions are much the same set that stimulated the old gods to interfere in human affairs. Greed, revenge, lust, the will to power, compassion, love, perhaps not in that order. Herodotus's text is full of characters who can no longer transcend reality the way the magical gods used to, but they share with those gods some qualities that are only vestigial in the mundane world. The heroic transcends not just the bounds of reality or the laws of nature, but inner constraints too, and the everyday constraints of conventional institutions, behaviors, physical attainments, and so on. Two observations seem appropriate here. First, heroes engage our interest because they body forth, in unusual degree, a human virtue that enables them to transcend the conventional constraints. Our engagement with heroes and their achievements comes through our association with their transcendent human qualities. We all share those qualities, though, alas, in more limited degrees. Second, the archetypical hero in the Western tradition has been a male, power-oriented doer of usually violent deeds. There is, however, a wide range of qualities that we associate with in any hero. 
sanctity, compassion, selflessness, elegance, wit, ingenuity, patience, or whatever, equally as well as testosteronic violence. So we can see a saint, a nurse, a scientist as heroic, no less than the debased successors of Ulysses and Sir Galahad. When we are ten, facing that more or less and increasingly autonomous reality, we need to establish some kind of intellectual and psychological security. The past security of mythic understanding, which did not have to deal with an autonomous and alien world, but which involved an unreflective, Eden-like acceptance of it, is no longer available. Romantic association offers one prominent technique for forging a new security in the face of this threatening reality. Both Herodotus and the modern newly literate explorer associate with those features of reality that seem best able to transcend the threats of the everyday world. By associating with whomever or whatever in the world seems best able to transcend those threats, we too feel some security against such threats, some confidence that we might transcend them. When we are ten, we are very much at the mercy of the world around us. We are typically subject to endless rules and regulations, parental, societal, and, not least, natural. The person, institution, or team that the child associates with usually gives clear clues to the constraints found most problematic. The immensely rich, decadent, dirty rock star offers one kind of hero, the skillful soccer player another, and likewise the successful writer, the outrageous singer or actor, the powerful hockey or football team. The tension characteristic of romance comes from the desire to transcend a threatening reality while seeking to secure one's identity within it. A characteristic of romantic understanding, then, is its ready association with transcendent human qualities, or human qualities exercised to transcendent degree. This observation is important for the education of children from about 8 to 15 because almost any curriculum material can be made understandable if students can associate romantically with such qualities within it. This is, I might note in passing, not a matter of manipulating students to learn the knowledge we privilege, but rather a matter of having the courtesy to attend to how they can best make sense of any knowledge. So we can come to understand important features of, for example, the Industrial Revolution by associating with the energy and ingenuity of its heroes, such as Isambard Kingdom Brunel or James Watt, though that does not put it quite right. The trick is to show the Industrial Revolution, the inventions, the statistics of population growth, farm production, and so on, as an expression of an energy and ingenuity the students can associate with, or to show it as an attempt to subjugate nature so transcendingly arrogant and impious that it threatens now to destroy all life on earth. Similarly, we can understand the movement to emancipate slaves by associating with the courage, compassion, and persistence of those who struggled and suffered, and struggle and suffer still, in this cause. Or we can understand the life cycle of eels by associating with the patient ingenuity of Johann Schmidt, who spent 20 years pursuing eel larvae, gradually uncovering detail after detail about their lives and astounding migrations. Or we can understand rock formations, Latin conjugations, chemical processes, grammatical structures, and anything else by locating within it a human quality in transcendent degree with which students can associate. Anything can be made the object of a romantic association if we see it in the appropriate light, and doing so is the key to successful teaching and learning during this period. The kind of understanding these romantic associations allow is clearly limited, but so is all understanding. Understanding is not an on-off condition. It is, as the holograph metaphor suggests, amenable to ever-increasing clarity. It may reasonably be called an immature form of understanding, but immaturity is not something to complain about in the immature. While 19th and early 20th century critics analyzed Herodotus's conception of historical causality, and his very conception of history as inadequate and immature, Compared with more modern conceptions, theirs is a limited criticism. In part, it derives from seeing his work exclusively in terms of their own, 
and judging his as a failure to conform with their criteria of proper historical writing. This is a reasonable judgment, only if the critic also shows sensitivity to the criteria by which Herodotus worked and by which his history remains a triumphant success. A. N. Whitehead characterizes romance as an excitement following on the vividness of novelty and the, quote, unexplored connections with possibilities half disclosed by glimpses and half concealed by the wealth of material. Romantic emotion is essentially the excitement consequent on the transition from the bare facts to the first realizations of the import of their unexplored relationships, end quote. He adds that this, quote, great romance is the flood which bears on the child towards the life of the spirit, end quote. While my interest is purely secular, one cannot talk casually about transcendence without acknowledging the spiritual role that the idea has played in the Western tradition. Romantic transcendence, even if we wish to avoid its mystical associations, does have an effective component. In addition, successfully associating with transcendent expressions or embodiments of such qualities as compassion, courage, pity, and so on, involves a recognition within others of the autonomy one recognizes in oneself. This ability to associate with transcendence in others leads at a simple level to recognizing virtue in one's enemy, as does Herodotus. Early in the Western literate tradition, this ability was reckoned rare and strange. Saxo Grammaticus wrote in his Gesta Denarum, quote, The men of Thule, Iceland, are very fond of learning and of recording the history of all peoples, and they are equally pleased to reveal the excellences of others or of themselves. End quote. One is not far at this point from deconstructing the concept of enemy and reaching the insight of the literate Jesus of Nazareth that one should love one's enemies and indeed see in them a transcendence we can all share. Well, I think it is reasonable to see the ability to form romantic associations with human qualities in transcendent degree as one aspect of what has traditionally been called spiritual development. One may prefer to avoid such terms, but even so, one may recognize in them an expansion of one's range of human sympathies. Inevitably, we are associating with the external world by means of qualities we recognize in ourselves, and we properly elaborate them in ourselves by continually associating with varied features of the world. In turn, we begin to conform our understanding to the features of the real world, and this requires courage. It requires that mystical ability to forget the self and acknowledge the difference and autonomy in the other. The journey out of Eden is also a freedom from the all-encompassing ego, to use Freud's metaphor. Humanized Knowledge The author of an earlier and more troublingly potent Superman than Clark Kent's alter ego insisted that we must ever love and honor great individual human beings, and that the task of scholarly study of the past was to bring such people constantly to the forefront of our minds. Herodotus's history certainly exemplifies this principle. Each mega-ernon is shown as the product of some person's or some people's actions. The frequent accounts of battles focus on the few outstanding fighters and, commonly, their motives for distinguishing themselves. Worthy of record after the description of each battle are the names of those soldiers who acquitted themselves best. So the name of the Spartan Philocylon will be remembered forever because he was brave in transcendent degree. As your eye passes over the name, you might wonder what kind of reward this is. This focus on individuals and the emotions that stimulate them to act is characteristic of the romantic way of understanding the world. One can give an account of the world as an accumulation of the products of individuals' acts, made further comprehensible in terms of the emotions that generated them, emotions that we all share. All knowledge, after all, is human knowledge. Everything we know is knowable through the lives of its inventors, discoverers, or users, and we can have access to that knowledge through the hopes, fears, or intentions that drove them. Access to Pythagoras' theorem, for example, can come most easily during this period if the student sees the theorem in the context of Pythagoras' life 
and as a product of Pythagoras' hopes and fears. Another way of making this point is to draw on R.G. Collingwood's argument that all history is the history of thought, that is, the understanding we can construct from any historical event, document, ruin, or artifact, is constrained by the degree to which we can infer the human thoughts that brought it about or were involved with it. Romantic understanding, in particular, is constructed by seeing the object of thought in the context of someone's or some people's thoughts, intentions, hopes, or fears. Where Collingwood writes of thought, we might, in the case of romantic understanding, interpret that in the sense that could clearly include emotions. What Collingwood argues about historical understanding may be thus extended to romantic understanding of any knowledge of the world. It is not, of course, impossible to construct some understanding of earthquakes or algebra or Milton's Paradise Lost by means other than the emotions of the people involved. During the early adolescent years in our culture, however, the most ready and engaging access to understanding is achieved through the emotions and thoughts most intimately tied in with the phenomena to be studied. Journalists and teachers recognize that knowledge can be effectively communicated if it is put into an engaging context for readers or students. Journalists commonly refer to finding a human interest angle. Teachers know that an illustrative anecdote, particularly if it is rich in emotional motivation, can have a remarkable effect on engaging interest. The usual problem in teaching is that such anecdotes are thought of as hooks to attract students' interest as a prelude to the real work of the lesson or unit. The trick is to expand through the lesson or unit the principle that makes the hook work. As discussed earlier, one of the incidental products of literacy has been the compilation of dictionaries, encyclopedias, and textbooks for storing knowledge. Storing knowledge is how we rather innocently put it, forgetting the metaphorical sense of knowledge in such a phrase. When we test students' educational achievement in terms of what they remember of the knowledge taught them, which remains by far the commonest form of evaluation, we reinforce the image of the textbook, encyclopedia, or dictionary as the paradigm of the successful knower. It becomes important in such a climate of opinion to emphasize that books do not store knowledge. They contain symbolic codes that can serve us as external mnemonics for knowledge. Knowledge can only exist in living human minds. No sensible aim of education can include making human minds mimic textbooks. Yet we see constant examples of just this. The alternative educational task is to teach students how to revivify the symbolic codes by transmuting them into human understanding, reconstituting the inert codes as living human knowledge. We can encourage such reconstitution by showing the knowledge within the life of its inventor, discoverer, user, sufferer, or author, and this can be made readily comprehensible if we connect such knowledge with the student's emotions. If, for example, we wish to teach the geography of the Americas, we might introduce it in the context of the emotions of the first discoverers and settlers. It is not just that we will see the landscape and climate, the flora and fauna, through the eyes of those who first came across the Bering Strait land bridge, but we will feel those features through their emotional responses, as we can reasonably infer them. We can learn about mountains and rivers through the expectations, hopes, and fears of people as they travel east and south. The landscape becomes humanized in terms of the challenges it presented, the food sources it provided, and the material culture it supported. With more detailed authenticity, we can feel the new world through the written words, the diaries, letters, official documents, poetry, of those Europeans who spread through the Americas. Everything we know was discovered or invented or authored by somebody. We have taken some pride in abstracting the hard-won fragments of knowledge from the lives of its makers and laying them out in textbooks, encyclopedias, atlases, and dictionaries. These are wonderfully convenient devices for retrieval purposes, but for first access to knowledge during this layer of educational development, we would do better to re-embed it in the lives of its makers. That way, students can also feel why someone might care about the structure of the universe, the behavior of insects, the interactions of chemicals, and so on. Romantic Rationality These emphases on the exotic, transcendence, and human emotion 
will no doubt continue to set off warning signals in many minds. Are we to turn over the intermediate years of schooling to sensationalist material and activities? Stimulating students' imaginations may be all very well, but there is also the serious business of kidding them out with the practical knowledge and skills they are going to need in order to deal with the social, political, and economic worlds out there. My general argument is that attending to the characteristics of romantic understanding will provide the most effective means of ensuring that students master whatever knowledge and skills they need in order to deal successfully with the world. Our cultural development and that of students today does not involve moving from mythic thinking to a more or less discreet, better, and more practically efficacious kind of thinking we call rational. Rather, these two kinds of thinking share a great deal more than what distinguishes them, and the dramatic difference between them masks a significant continuity underneath. It seems useful at this point to indicate in what sense the earlier form of rationality that characterizes romantic understanding is distinctively rational and distinctively non-mythic, apart from its lack of magic. Let us return to the example of Herodotus, father of a distinctive form of rational inquiry. Unlike his successor, Thucydides, Herodotus does not formulate a theory of history. He is too intent on describing a remarkable erga and constructing an engaging narrative. But neither does he simply tell a story like the earlier writers of myths or the poets. Homer told the story of an earlier war and used factual material in the telling, but Homer's account is primarily loyal to poetic criteria rather than to describing precisely what happened. The vividness and emotional impact of his story are paramount. Its need to convey universal truths about human life in general is uppermost. While Herodotus also shapes his account into a narrative, his determination to represent what really happened and what really is the case generated a new form of expression. We have become very sensitive to the ways in which the shapes of narratives tell more than the simple facts they purport to represent. Herodotus's narrative is shaped by his desire not only to represent reality, but also to tell a good story and to affect his audience's emotions. His selection of the great conflict with the Persians, and of events to body forth this conflict, is not innocent of the storyteller's art. Even so, we recognize that he is constrained, unlike the fictional storyteller in Homer, by what really happened. He might select the most interesting war and events to narrate, but he does not make up wars or events in order to create a particular emotional response in his readers or audience. Herodotus generated a new kind of narrative, a compromise between the poet's desire to evoke an emotional response and the rational desire to describe the world as it really is. We can describe it as a compromise because we know about the scientific method that is yet to come. Herodotus's rational inquiry mixes elements of poetry or myth and elements of science. It is post-oral, but pre-scientific or pre-theoretic. Now this description results from our fitting his work into one of our narratives of historical development. His work is a distinctive and autonomous form of inquiry by itself. It yields a particular kind of understanding and prefigures endless forms that have developed since. Most journalists today, for example, aim to tell a dramatic story while adhering, more or less, to what really is the case. But they are selective in the stories they choose to tell and the incidents they think will be interesting. The Romantic movement shares the commitment to the extremes of reality, the limits of experience, the fascination with the mysterious and the mega-ergon. We may recognize this form of understanding in ourselves. Quote, we all know by now that many scientific and mathematical hypotheses start their lives as little stories or metaphors, but they reach their scientific maturity by a process of conversion into verifiability, formal and empirical, and their power at maturity does not rest on their dramatic origins. End quote. This distinction between stories and theories, what Bruner settles for calling narrative and paradigmatic forms of thought, marks off starting and ending points of some developmental process, but attends little to their distinctive forms of thought. 
During middle school years, we are dealing with forms of thought that are not shaped by stories in the sense that mythic understanding tends to be, nor have they yet reached maturity. They are nevertheless typically rational in their attempts to conform with reality, exclude magic, recognize the importance of non-contradiction, and handle the kinds of syllogisms with which this chapter began. The vulgar notion of romance tends to highlight the exotic and wonderful, and not recognize that these as the margins of reality are crucially distinctive of a romantic view. It is well to remember that reality was the main discovery of Romanticism in European cultural history, as far as its participants were concerned. They saw their great achievement as a sweeping away of the clutter of artificiality that prevented people from engaging directly with nature in all its uniqueness and particularity. The excitement of Romanticism was not simply a product of the sense of the imagination being free, but of being free to explore afresh the reality of human experience and the natural world. Blake expressed this engagement with reality in terms of cleansing the gates of perception, Shelley as the lifting of a veil from the hidden beauty of the world. The romantic perception is focused on the details of the world. Quote, romantic art, then, is not romantic in the vulgar sense, but realistic in the sense of concrete, full of particulars. End quote. This is very much the world Herodotus and his near-contemporary logographoi, philosophers, and proto-scientists present to us. Once we can write, one can try to describe in various extensive forms the concrete particularity of the world. Subsequent inquirers can observe the world and previous descriptions of the world and then match their observations against those descriptions. They can then construct their descriptions to match more closely their sense of reality. The making-matching process can lead to increasingly precise representations of reality in pictures, maps, and written descriptions. It is a rational process that can be quite untheoretic or non-scientific. It is a form of romantic, rational activity that is common, focused on the particular, and also prerequisite to theoretic scientific thinking. When Darwin wondered at the diversity of species of finch on the Galapagos Islands, he exhibited a romantic engagement and romantic rational inquiry, without which his reflective theoretical inquiry could not have successfully gone to work. Without the initial wonder, it is hard to see how more systematic theoretical inquiry can get fruitfully underway. Thus, we might want to see whether certain forms of rational inquiry can be devised for the middle school years that stimulate and develop romantic understanding and do not prematurely try to exercise a kind of theoretic thinking for which the prerequisites are not developed. Much of our failure in encouraging mathematical and scientific understanding in schools may stem from the general failure to distinguish romantic understanding and its distinctive ways of engaging and making rational sense of the world as prerequisite to theoretic thinking. What is in danger of being lost? I believe it is a serious mistake to view education as an inevitably progressive process, as an enterprise in which we succeed to the degree that children learn more, become more skilled in literacy and numeracy, give evidence of higher stages of psychological development, and so on, while ignoring or neglecting the losses associated with each gain. To beleaguered schools and teachers, I recognize that this may seem a somewhat exotic new complaint. And while so many students seem to acquire so marginal a degree of basic literacy and numeracy, the idea that even these meager successes might be snatched away can be very depressing. Depressing or not, it needs to be faced. I think the result of facing it can, in the context of the discussion of romantic understanding, be liberating rather than the opposite, because then we can see better how education might go forward during these years. Literacy, for example, not only stimulates and supports romantic understanding, but at the same time supports an alienation from characteristics of mythic understanding. At a cultural level, we can see this in the incomprehension literacy created about non-literate societies. The literate Hesatius's dismissal of his predecessor's myths as ridiculous strikes a chord that echoes again and again through Western cultural history. Quote, 
The primitive mind is made mysterious, even though it is our inheritance. Mythic understanding becomes alien and unrecapturable after the paradigm shift to literate rationality. An insistent theme of Western consciousness is that one cannot go home again. One cannot return to Eden or comprehend the heart of darkness. These images are so potent because they capture, however imprecisely, the sense of loss that is a part of literate rationality's heritage. Quote, More than any other factor in human experience, it is the use of rational language which destroys the child's intuitive relationship with the world. End quote. In developing more realistic and practically efficacious intellectual tools, we run the danger, in Wordsworth's terms, of giving our hearts away. The sense of alienation that comes with the recognition of an autonomous reality is largely an alienation from the earlier sense of participating in nature. After that break, little we see in nature is ours, as Wordsworth put it. The sense of being cut off from the natural world by the tools of rationality has, of course, been a matter of indifference to many people in Western cultural history, whose delight rather has been in the practical control over nature that these tools have given. For others, like Wordsworth, it has created a sense of being forlorn. Plato had long ago expressed his concerns about the potential losses that came along with literacy. He puts his caution significantly in a story. Socrates tells his young friend Phaedrus the old Egyptian legend about Thoth, the god-king of ancient Nocratus. Thoth was the inventor of droughts, dice, arithmetic, astronomy, and much else, including writing. Then Thoth took his inventions to Thamus, the god-king of all Egypt, perhaps looking for venture capital to get astronomy off the ground and the dice rolling. Thamus was impressed with many of them, but he had no time for what Thoth considered his greatest invention, writing. He expressed his objection thus, quote, The discovery of the alphabet will create forgetfulness in the learner's souls, because they will not use their memories. They will trust to the external written characters and not remember of themselves. Your invention is not an aid to memory. You give your disciples not truth, but only the semblance of truth. They will be hearers of many things and will have learned nothing. End quote. Thoth might reasonably have complained that the point of writing was to release a burden from memory and free the mind for other kinds of more productive activity. But Thamus had a deeper insight. By replacing the imagistic, story-shaped, and story-shaping world of mythic consciousness, one did not simply gain a release from a burden. Literacy has not been a pure gain. One also lost the intensity of participatory experience in an immediate life world, in which one's store of knowledge and lore was profoundly and vitally meaningful. As the eye, which derived knowledge efficiently from writing, replaced the ear as prominent in accessing information, so the participatory emotion-laden message of the speaker no longer enveloped and produced a direct effect on the body of the hearer. The message was increasingly coded in written symbols, access to which was a more indirect intellectual matter. At an individual level, we can see common losses of mythic capacities as children are taught literacy and rational skills in modern schools. To take the example of metaphoric fluency, which seems crucial to enriching and enlarging our language use and to our imaginative exploration of the world, we see it become constricted in the process of literacy instruction. Winner's research, referred to in Chapter 2, concludes that, quote, children around the ages of 8, 9, and 10 often reject metaphors addressed to them, insisting, for instance, that colors cannot be loud and people cannot be icy, and that the incidence of spontaneous metaphoric speech appears to decline rather dramatically during the early school years, end quote. Consider some of Winner's observations about the importance of metaphors. Quote, they, quote, are economic. They, quote, are economical, vivid, and memorable, and sometimes they are the only way we have to say what we want to say. The effect of a metaphor is to clarify, to explain, to reveal, to alter the listener's understanding of the topic. Metaphor helps us to acquire knowledge about new domains, and also has the effect of restructuring our organization of knowledge. End quote. 
Now, it would obviously be improper to see a simple causal connection between literacy instruction and the decline of metaphoric fluency. We have a correlation, but we would need to know whether metaphoric fluency did not also decline about this age with children in oral cultures just to enhance the correlation, and then we would need to know much more about the processes by which our typical modes of literacy instruction affect metaphor use. The earlier observations about the possible declining influence of a genetic language module might better explain the reduction in metaphoric fluency, of course. But, even so, we can informally observe that this reduction may be more or less acute, depending on whether literacy instruction encourages and stimulates metaphor production or discourages and suppresses it. Eric Havlock also recognized the importance of building literacy instruction on the capacities developed earlier in life and in cultural history. Quote, the mechanisms of modern education place primary emphasis on the speedy mastery of reading and writing as a preparation for the curriculum of secondary schools and adult life. Should we not be prepared to consider the possible conditions imposed upon the management of our educational systems by our oral inheritance? The proposition I would offer is that the developing child should be expected in some sense to relive the conditions of this inheritance. That the teaching of literacy be conducted on the supposition that it is to be preceded by a curriculum of, say, dance and recitation, and that it be accompanied by continual instruction in these oral arts. End quote. The idea that we can lose more than we gain in the process of education is, I realize, an odd notion in a culture that takes even the most superficial trappings of rationality as constituting vast superiority over traditional mythic forms of thinking. The binary opposite perception that superficial rationality and literacy provide only a marginal utility at the enormous expense of a wisdom and harmony of mythic consciousness has become a fashionable position. The fashionable alternative also tends to value traditional oral cultural forms of thinking as superior to even the most sophisticated Western forms, inescapably enmeshed as they are supposed to be in patriarchal, racist, or sexist epistemologies. The fashionable alternative does, however, help to point out that a literate intellectual life bounded by sensationalist papers, TV sports, tourism, Hollywood movies, and joyless material consumerism is not an obvious advance in understanding the world and experience over what is provided in many traditional oral cultures. The conclusion I want to draw here is that literate rationality can support a kind of understanding that can enhance our lives and make them more abundant. Induction into literate rationality supports romantic understanding, and that induction can be managed better or worse. Better involves persevering, perhaps in a somewhat transformed way, the characteristics of the prior kind of understanding. Worse involves the suppression of characteristics of mythic understanding. Worse, I fear, is the more common. Conclusion Romantic understanding, then, is a somewhat distinctive kind of understanding supported by an alphabetic literacy bent to the development of rationality. Central to romantic understanding is a sense of an autonomous self and a relatedly autonomous reality. This is, of course, an imprecise and unsatisfactory way of putting it. Clearly, younger children live and deal with reality and with an autonomous external world. But equally clearly, there is commonly a shift in children's understanding of that reality around the period when literacy becomes internalized. Sandor Ferenczi writes of the slow growth in children's development of a sense of reality and of the development of a notion of objectivity and autonomy resulting from separating the sense of self from the external world. Freud, too, with an equally unsure use of metaphors, writes of the ego originally including everything and only gradually detaching itself from the external world. This very complex change in the way the mind stands in relation to external reality is difficult to grasp and represent and I have chosen the metaphors of mythic and romantic understanding as the best I can find to point to some important and somewhat neglected features of the change. I have drawn largely on an ancient Greek example to represent a cultural historical expression of romantic understanding. 
This may seem a bit perverse when a whole movement in more recent cultural history has been named Romantic. I have explored connections between Romanticism and Romantic understanding elsewhere, but might usefully draw here on the foremost Romantic poet in English to summarize some distinctions between mythic and Romantic understanding. Wordsworth wrote extensively and insightfully about education, but in verse, so one doesn't see him much referred to in the professional literature in education. He characterizes childhood perception and understanding as vivid, bright, and rich, using terms similar to those used by nearly all who have written extensive autobiographies of childhood, and who try to recapture in words a sense of intimate participation in a vividly sensed world. That early childhood perception is then disturbed, and the vividness fades into the light of common day. He talks of shades of the prison house closing on the growing child. Quote, Wordsworth is talking about something common to us all, the development of the sense of reality. End quote. In Intimations of Immortality, Wordsworth makes two responses to this development of a sense of reality. On the one hand, there is a profound and irredeemable sense of loss. Quote, but yet I know, where'er I go, that there hath passed away a glory from the earth. End quote. On the other hand, he recognizes that something survives after all something of the early splendor that is a masterlight of all our seeing, and that can continue to vivify the years that bring the philosophic mind. Wordsworth resisted the easy contrast of the romantic imagination with dull rationality, a theme common among other romantic writers such as Coleridge. The philosophic mind, in Wordsworth's developmental theory, and in mine that borrows from him, comprises as far as possible the freshness of early understanding along with imagination and rationality. Imagination is crucial to preserving the capacities of mythic understanding. But imagination is not in any sense in conflict with developing rationality and its view of reality, seen in the light of common day. Rather, quote, imagination is reason in her most exalted mood, end quote. One of the weaker and more mischievous inheritances of Romanticism for 20th century thinking has been the easy opposition of reason and imagination following John Stuart Mill's observation of how easily distinctions slide into oppositions. But we need not accept this unfruitful binary structuring. Central to romantic understanding is the growing sense of an autonomous reality. The sense of reality seems tied in with schooling and literacy, and in the decontextualized thinking techniques that have proven effective in describing and controlling reality. But while schooling seems commonly successful at disturbing features of mythic understanding and stimulating a sense of autonomous reality, it seems less successful at engaging students imaginatively with the aspects of reality that are laid out in the curriculum. This is the danger of schooling through the intermediate years. Decontextualizing literacy, numeracy, and rationality undermine mythic understanding, but are so inadequately introduced that romantic understanding does not develop to the point where it provides a coherence, security, and meaningfulness equal to what has been displaced. Herein lie the roots of alienation. The better path is to recognize romantic understanding as a somewhat distinctive kind of understanding, and to shape teaching in the curriculum during the middle school years in order to stimulate and develop it. Because this widely recognized transition in our early lives has been posed simplistically as moving from the irrational to the rational, from concrete to abstract thinking, from pre-scholastic to disciplinary. The distinctive first layer of rational understanding has been largely neglected. It is properly a mediator between these common binary oppositions. Romantic understanding represents a gradual transition. Students' forms of thinking gradually accommodate to the shapes of autonomous reality, but they first make sense of reality in romantic terms. Romantic understanding is lively, energetic, less concerned with systematic structures than with the unexpected connections and the delight they can bring. For example, what state in the United States is named for Julius Caesar? When invading Britain, Caesar quartered his armies on islands off the coast of Gaul. They become known as Insulae Caesarae. Over the centuries, Caesarae degenerated into 
Jersey. They are now called the Jersey Islands, and New Jersey might more properly be called New Caesar. Readers who do not already know this might like to explore the small fillip of pleasure such an unexpected connection between disparate pieces of knowledge can bring. One could learn a great deal of geography and history and all kinds of other things through such little anecdotes. It would not necessarily be systematic, theoretic geographical knowledge, but it would be knowledge of a kind that I consider prerequisite to making subsequent theoretic knowledge more meaningful. I have touched on just a few characteristics of romantic understanding, ignoring the revolt and idealism, the distinctive boredom and the sensibilities that are features of a romantic sense of the world. I have even neglected the sense of self that develops as a kind of side effect of the discovery of autonomous reality. We come to recognize that it is from ourself that reality is autonomous. But I hope this brief characterization is enough to establish the romantic as a somewhat distinctive kind of understanding. Like the mythic, it is not something that is properly superseded as we develop further kinds of understanding. It will in some degree coalesce with those. Its characteristics should then be readily recognizable in our general understanding of the world.